Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 5, Genesis chapters 4, 5, and 6. Well, last week, we examined what really amounts to the primary reason that we have a Bible. And why, in a few chapters, there's going to be such a thing as a Hebrew created. Because from Genesis forward, the concept of sin and thus the need for atonement is introduced. So let's continue with our study in Genesis chapter 4. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to do a lot of reading today, so keep it handy. Um... We're going to start reading at verse 9. Genesis chapter 4. Adonai said to Cain, Where is Evel your brother? And he replied, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood at your hands and when you farm the ground it will no longer yield its strength to you you will be a fugitive wandering the earth and Cain said to Adonai my punishment's greater than I can bear you are banning me today from the land and from your presence I'll be a fugitive wandering this earth and whoever finds me will kill me and Adonai answered him Therefore, whoever kills Cain will receive vengeance sevenfold. And Adonai put a sign on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain left the presence of Adonai and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now Cain had sexual relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Hanok. And Cain built a city and named the son after his city Hanok. And to Hanok was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mechuayel, and Mechuayel fathered Matuzael, and Matuzael fathered Lemech. And Lemech took himself two wives, and the name of the one was Adah, while the name of the other was Tzilah. And Adah gave birth to Yaval, and he was the ancestor of those who live in tents and have cattle. And his brother's name was Yuval, and he was the ancestor of all who play the lyre and the flute. And Tzilah gave birth to Tualkain who forged all kinds of tools from brass and iron. The sister of Tuvalkain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zila, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear what I say. I killed a man for wounding me, the young man who injured me. If Cain will be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam again had sexual relations with his wife, and she gave birth to a son, whom she named Shait, for God was granted has granted me another seed in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. To Shet was born a son, whom he called Enosh. That is when people began to call on the name of Adonai. It's very important for us to get this. <clears throat> the first humans. And their first children, at the very beginning of life on this planet, were shown by God Himself that the consequence of sin carries a high price. 
and that price is death. And in His great mercy, God decided to allow for a time the blood of innocent animals to cover, that is to atone for man's sins. Now note that I said cover because the sin was still going to be there. Just covered up like a a garment covers over a, a, a human form. Like Adam and Havah's nakedness was covered up. In the end, our clothing is simply a means to disguise our nakedness. Under that disguise of cloth, our nakedness, like our sin, is still there. For centuries and centuries, God would provide a divinely acceptable but contrived covering over the sin of all those who placed their trust in Him. And this acceptable covering was in the form of animal blood. Now the blood of the animal would serve a spiritual purpose, atoning for sin. And the skin of the animal would serve a physical purpose by covering the naked bodies of humans, and at the same time providing a wonderful illustration of just what was happening invisibly in the spiritual world to compensate for mankind's sinful behavior. This, of course, is the reality of duality at work. But in the course of time, as God allowed His plan of redemption to gestate, Christ was going to come and change all that. Because unlike the blood of animals, Messiah's blood didn't only cover over the sin, it nullified it. It sent it far away. Now as we saw in our last lesson, Cain has angry words with Evel and then kills him sometime later. This isn't necessarily the world's first murder, but it may have been. There were more people in the world by now than Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. Certainly, this is the first biblically recorded murder. Now, the earth's first family was at this time still living in Eden, the land of Eden, not the garden. Eden was a special place made for God's people. God decided to banish Cain from the land of Eden for the shedding of his brother's blood. And the Lord sends him to the east to a land called Node. Node translates to wandering. It incorporates the sense of of unrest or restlessness in its meaning. Cain marries. He has children. Many descendants follow over the years. He even builds a city. Now, by the way, concerning the sign that God put on Cain to indicate that no one was to harm him, there's some interesting commentary from the ancient sages about this. Now, first of all, the word usually translated as no one or anyone in Hebrew is kol. And kol can mean anyone, but just as often it can also mean whatsoever, anything, all things. 
So what exactly Cain was being protected from was not necessarily just humans. Some of the commentaries say that the animals might have been his greatest worry. But it is primarily those commentators who say that other than for Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and probably an unmentioned sister or two, there were no other people on this earth. And that's a very big stretch. There, there is little doubt that there were many people by now. You'll, you'll notice that we go quite a time before there is mention of another female other than Hava, Eve, in the Bible. And this is simply because of the patriarchal nature of the Bible. It's male-oriented. And because all genealogy and family ties were according to their relationship to the father, the listing of generations only rarely includes a female name. But then as now, there were considerably more women born than men. Now another interesting take by some of the ancient rabbis concerning this verse is that it wasn't a sign that was put onto Cain. It's that he was a sign. He was a sign for all to see that anyone who committed blood guilt, in this case murder, they would be banished from the land and forced to go away to sanctuary. In fact, this concept that the Israelites, who were centuries away from becoming a reality, that they adopted when they entered Canaan, that that of providing a place of sanctuary and protection for the person who killed someone as a result of justifiable or accidental killing, is said by some scholars to have been modeled after the consequences that Cain bore. I don't buy that. Cain committed murder unjustifiable homicide. No sanctuary is permitted for unjustifiable homicide. So I don't see a relation between the two. Now what we see as a result of this story is that from here on Cain will be associated with evil and wickedness. The symbolism is so thick you could cut it with a knife Because in verse 16 it says, So Cain left the presence of Adonai and lived in the land of Node, of wandering. Here's one of those examples I told you I'd identify when we came across it. An example of a statement in the Bible being simultaneously literal and symbolic. Because indeed, Cain was literally sent away from Eden and lived in a land called wandering or restlessness. He was sent away from the presence of God. And is it not true from a symbolic sense that when we are away from the presence of God, when we are separated from God, we are indeed in a state of wandering and unrest. We live a hopeless and meaningless existence in a constant directionless state when we live apart from God. The only rest that exists for humanity is when we're in God's presence. So Cain is the start of the line of wicked people who will turn their backs on God. I think as far as starting of a line, I think 
in addition to that, it's the starting of a pattern. All right? And I think this pattern is, is extremely important to keep in mind because we're going to see a lot of patterns develop as we move through the very early stages of Genesis. Thus, we're introduced to the fifth generation from Cain, headed by a fellow named Lamech. And Lamech is far removed from God. And Lamech, as had Cain and many others, he breaks God's instructions about the institution of marriage, of a man and a woman being joined as one flesh. He gets greedy. He takes two wives. And then, listen to the proud, rebellious Lamech, who boasts to these two wives. Adah and Zila, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear what I say. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man who injured me. If Cain will be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Lamech admits to murder. The line of Cain was thoroughly wicked, godless, corrupted in a mere five generations after the first man was created. And from a time of living in the Garden of Eden in the very presence of God. Five generations. We'll see this same pattern emerge many years later after the great flood when Noah, the second Adam as he's called, repopulates the earth but amazingly, almost immediately, wickedness reappears. Interestingly, that won't be the last time history repeats itself in that way. When Christ comes the second time, and I think it's in the very near future, and cleanses the whole world and sets up His perfect kingdom for a thousand years towards the end of that millennium, people will once again display wickedness and rebel against Messiah. And they will be destroyed completely, along with Satan, the entire evil spiritual world, and even evil itself. Only then will that that pattern, that cycle of evil, finally be broken once and forever. Well, the all-merciful God then gives Eve another child that in her view is a replacement for the now dead Abel. This new child's name is Shet, Hebrew for Seth. Okay? And Shet means compensation or it means granted. As, as, as in a hope or a prayer that has been granted. And as we move along in our study, we're going to see that Sheit is regarded as the line of good as opposed to his banished brother Cain, who represents the line of evil. Now, whereas Cain and his descendants wandered further and further away from God, we're told in verse 26 that through Seth, this is when the people began to call on Adonai. Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord or Master. In other words, Seth led people to look to God for direction and they also offered Adonai their praise and worship. So the dynamic is now established. The descendants of Shet, Seth 
are the line of good or the pattern of good and the descendants of Cain are the line or pattern of evil. Okay? Let's move on to Genesis 5. Here is the genealogy of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and called them Adam, humankind, man, on the day that they were created. After Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son like himself and named him Shet. And after Shet was born, Adam lived another 800 years and they had both sons and daughters. In all, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. Shet lived 105 years and fathered Enosh. And Enosh was born. Shet lived another 870 years and had sons and daughters. In all, Shet lived 912 years, and then he died. Enosh lived 90 years and fathered Canaan. And after Canaan was born, Enosh lived another 815 years and had sons and daughters. In all, Enosh lived 905 years and then he died. Canaan lived 70 years and fathered Mahalel. And after Mahalel was born, Canaan lived another 840 years and had sons and daughters. In all, Canaan lived 910 years and then he died. Mahalel's Mahalel lived 65 years and fathered Yered. And after Yered was born, Mahalel lived another 830 years and had sons and daughters. In all, Mahalel lived 895 years. Then he died. Yered lived 162 years and fathered Hanok. And Hanok was born. Yered lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. And all Yered lived 962 years. And then he died. Hanok lived 65 years and fathered Methuselah. And after Methuselah was born, Hanok walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. And all Hanok lived 365 years. Hanok walked with God. And then he wasn't there. Because God took him. Matu Shalach lived 187 years and fathered Lemek. And after Lemek was born, Matu Shalach lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. In all, Matu Shalach lived 969 years and then he died. Lemek lived 182 years and fathered a son, whom he called Noach, restful. For he said, This one will comfort us in our labor and the hard work we do with our hands to get what comes from the ground that Adonai cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters, and all Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Yefet. I just want to point out a couple of things here about the genealogy that we just had recited to us. This was the genealogy of Seth. This is the line of good of the people of faith. Adam was 130 years old when Shet was born. 
We don't know how old he was when Cain was born. But he was likely quite young. Now remember that Adam and Eve were created as physically mature humans who could have procreated almost immediately and likely did. In fact, even though Cain is mentioned first, it's not necessarily so that he was an Adam and Eve's very first child, but probably he was the firstborn. Biblically speaking, the term firstborn denotes a status. So the firstborn is always a male. A family could have ten children, the first nine being girls. But if the tenth child was the first male child to be born in the family, he was given the status of firstborn. So Adam and Eve could have had some number of girl children before Cain was born, and given the circumstances, it's probable that they did. Now we need to stand back and be realistic here. Anyone who's a farmer or a rancher knows that the way to increase your flocks and your herds is to have a large number of females to each male. Since one male can impregnate many females, and it is the female who bears all the offspring, it's of little help to have a large number of males and a small number of females. So I think it's quite logical and reasonable to consider that the number of female humans was probably several times that of male humans, especially early on. God was intent on man rapidly populating the earth. And since he was no longer creating humans one by one from the dust of the earth, but instead was allowing the reproductive capabilities he had built into mankind to do the job, many females was the answer to rapid population growth. Since, so it is certain that Eve was a baby mill and that her daughters were baby mills and their daughters were baby mills and so on. There is nothing in the Bible to indicate that the age of sexual maturity in women occurred any earlier than it does today. But there is every indication that for hundreds of years the age at which women were still still giving birth is far greater than it is today. Biblically it would appear that it was quite usual for a 15 year old girl to be married and have her first child even so in Yeshua's day. So a new generation was starting about every 15 years. When we realized that Adam was 130 years old when Shet was born, it's probable that seven or eight generations of people already existed. That said, by the time of Abraham, pardon me, things had leveled out a bit. And the human lifespan and the span of human reproductive capability was much the same as it is today in, in modern times. Now notice that Noah was in Sheth, Sheth's line, Seth's. Notice also that Noah's father's name um, was Lamech. 
This is not the same Lamech that was in the fifth in line from Cain. Just like today, when, uh, when there are thousands, if not millions of people who have the same name, Fred and Rebecca and Kathy and Elizabeth, it was like that then. Lots of people had the same name, so we have to be careful as we read the Bible not to mix people up simply because they have the same name. Last point. People lived a really long time back then. I have heard many fascinating scientific reasons why that was possible or why it was impossible and therefore a fairy tale. But it doesn't matter. These were real people being talked about here. And they actually lived that many hundreds of years. This is not symbolism. It is literal. Now, there well may be significance in the precise number of years quoted that some people lived. That is, in the number itself. Enoch lived 365 years, the same number of days as in a solar year. Noah's father lived 777 years, seven being the number of completeness. Or it may be just coincidence, and I say that tongue-in-cheek. And as we go along, we will see that there are several numbers that have special significance in the Bible, many of which we're already familiar with. The number 7, the number 12, and of course in our day, the infamous 666. Chapter 5 ends with the birth of the three sons of Noah, who will repopulate the earth after the great flood. Now we, we have to comprehend that even though we're, we're told that Noah was 500 years old when he fathered these sons, that he was probably not precisely 500 years old because unless these boys were triplets or came from three different mothers simultaneously, they would have been spaced apart at least around three years. But more important, Noah didn't get his first children only on his 500th birthday. He must have contributed greatly to the world population by then. His own offspring probably accounted for a pretty fair share of those people who the Lord would call thoroughly wicked. Yet, as God does... These three sons were set apart. They were divided, elected, and separated from all of Noah's other offspring to become their surviving gene pool for all post-flood humanity. And every one of us listening and in this room is part of that gene pool that came from Noah. Okay, let's move on quickly to Genesis chapter 6. In time, when men began to multiply on earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took wives. Excuse me, my pages are stuck together here. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. 
And Adonai said, My spirit will not live in human beings forever, for they too are flesh. And therefore their lifespan is to be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the ancient heroes, men of renown. Adonai saw that the people on earth were very wicked, that all the imaginings of their heart were always of evil only. And Adonai regretted that he had made humankind on earth. It grieved his heart. And Adonai said, I will wipe out humankind whom I've created from the whole earth. And not only human beings, but animals, creeping things, birds in the air, for I regret that I ever made them. But Noah found grace in the sight of Adonai. Here's the history of Noah. In his generation, Noah was a man righteous and wholehearted. Noah walked with God. Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. The earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and yes, it was corrupt. For all living beings had corrupted their ways on earth. God said to Noah, The end of all living beings has come before me, for because of them the earth is filled with violence. I'll destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. You are to make the ark with rooms, cover it with pitch, both outside and inside. Here's how you are to build it. The length of the ark is to be 450 feet, its width 75 feet, its height uh, 45 feet. You are to make an opening for daylight in the ark, 18 inches below its roof. Put a door in its side, build it with lower, second, third decks. Then I myself will bring the flood of water over the earth to destroy from under heaven every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will be destroyed. But I will establish my covenant with you. You will come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. From everything living, from each kind of living being, you are to bring two into the ark to keep them alive with you. They are to be male and female. Of each kind of bird, each kind of livestock, each kind of animal creeping on the ground, two are to come to you so that they can be kept alive. Also take from all the kinds of food that are eaten and collect it for yourself. It's to be food for you and for them. This is what Noah did. He did all that God ordered him to do. Now the first few verses of this chapter contain some information that's among the most mysterious and troubling in all the Old Testament. It concerns the statement that the sons of God saw those daughters of men and that they were attractive and they took them as wives and the children born of those unions were different as their fathers were different, these sons of God. Now, sons of God is in Hebrew, B'nai Elohim. And we're going to see other references to these mysterious B'nai Elohim in later parts of the Bible. Now, we're going to talk more about this momentarily. But just know for now that I think they were some some kind of high-ranking spiritual being. They would not be classified as angels. But we are told that B'nai Elohim 
were given charge over all the nations of the earth. And we run into one of these Benai Elohim who is called the Prince of Persia in the book of Daniel. He's specifically referred to as a Benai Elohim. But the Bible also gives us a name for these special offspring of these hybrid people. And that name is Nephilim. Now the King James Bible and many other Bible translations have translated Nephilim to mean giants. You know, fee-fi-fo-fum giants. Okay. It was the Greek Septuagint developed in 250 BC who first took that tact. Okay. It took the Hebrew word Nephilim and translated it to the Greek word gigante. Okay. In Hebrew, however, Nephilim is a play on the ne- on the root word nephal, which means fallen or to fall upon. It certainly in Hebrew has no sense of beings of a very large size. Rather, the sense of the word is to cease or to die, to be cast down into the earth like a grave. It was even used to describe an abortion. And in other cases, it indicated something that was dead and rotting, decaying. Martin Luther described the nature of the Nephilim as men of violence, as tyrants. For lack of a better way to put it, the Nephilim were a race of something different, apart from anything else. It was an evil kind of difference. It is as though the Nephilim were some type of mutants or or aberration that became endowed with much power. They represented a joining together of the worst of the spiritual world with the worst of the physical world. Now back to our discussion about who these verses are referring to when it talks of these sons of, of God. Well, many Bible scholars have taken this to mean fallen angels. You hear that a lot. These were fallen angels. You know, it's easy to see how that conclusion could be arrived at when fallen or cast down is one sense of the word, Niflim. Add to that the heavenly or spiritual sense of sons of God, and the idea is formed that some fallen angels took on a human form, complete with reproductive organs, mated with human women with the result being a race of giants called Nephilim. The ancient Hebrew certainly never dreamed of this meaning. Rather, they saw it that the sons of God was simply a designation for the line of Seth, the line of faithful godly men. Conversely, the women, called daughters of men, were representatives of the line of Cain, the line of those who fell away from God. Now, according to the ancient Hebrew sages up to this time, the faithful line of Seth had stayed separate from the wicked line of Cain. But eventually some men from the line of Seth lusted after those 
beautiful women a cane and there went the neighborhood. (laughs) Now the whole human race was fouled and polluted with evil. Now this separation and division of the line of Cain from the line of Seth is seen by the Hebrew sages as a type or a pattern. In other words, it's one of, another one of these underlying fundamental principles that we see played out over and over again in the Bible. A long time into the future when God would take the Israelites out of Egypt and give them the Torah which we're in the midst of studying, he did so with the instruction to be ye separated. He separated Israel away from all other peoples of the world to be a nation of priests to him, to be a faithful people to God. All the other peoples of the world, everybody other than the Israelites, were given a title, Goyim. Gentiles. The Israelites were a people holy to God. Everybody else wasn't. And this is how it was for the line of Cain versus the line of Seth long before the Israelites ever existed. In any case, whether they were the result of mixing two lines of humans or the mixing of humans with spiritual beings, the result of all this was that a race of people called Nephilim bedeviled everybody and were able at times to dominate at will. Apparently they were somewhat bigger and stronger and smarter and probably were the subjects of these ancient pagan myths and legends of great and fierce warriors and leaders who seemed to have superhuman qualities about them. So what were the Nephilim in reality? We really don't know for sure. But more and more scholars are coming to the conclusion that likely these were a people who in one way or another, one fashion or another, turned themselves over to Satan. And they gained great power in the doing. And when we read in the scriptures descriptions, in the scriptures rather, descriptions of the Antichrist, and how this this person will be incredibly charismatic and perhaps the most intelligent man ever to have lived cunning one step ahead of everybody then we find out it is Satan who is the source of his power I have no doubt that Satan was the source of power for Hitler. Hitler convinced an entire nation that generally identified itself, by the way, as a Christian nation, in case you've forgotten, that it was their duty to rule the world of the Jews, the Christ killers, as he commonly labeled them. He confounded the world with his abilities, his battle strategies. We were within within an eyelash of seeing him realize that dream. I have a feeling that Hitler could well be categorized as a type of modern-day Nephilim. 
Well, no matter whether the Nephilim's existence came from fallen sons of God, Benai Elohim, or from fallen man, the true source of their power is evil. And even the coming flood wouldn't be the end of it. I think we're going to eventually see that while the Nephilim were literal and real, they also eventually became a type. That is, before the flood, they were likely a real race of people, but after the flood, when they were wiped out, Nephilim and the other names for them might have been but other people that were thought to have similar attributes. I'm not sure. We'll see that later on in Genesis after the Great Flood and then again in the book of Numbers and eventually even in the book of Deuteronomy that the Nephilim or Nephilim-like people are there mentioned again. These post-flood types of Nephilim are also given a number of names including the Rephaim, the Emim, the Anakim, the Horim, and a few more. And when we get to the those biblical sections, I'll point all this out to you. And by the way, it was likely that the giant Goliath, who was slain by David, was of the Anakim because Goliath was from Goth, reported to be a village where the Anakim ruled. And we find this in Joshua 11. It's interesting that the Anakim and the Philistines occupied the same territory. Now we must also understand that as happens with men, as time passes, a reality can become distorted. And then it can be turned into a legend. The language of the Bible is not immune to that phenomenon because even though the Bible is divine truth, it is still told through the lives and events of real people. And it is told with the flaws misconceptions and all. So I suspect that in the episodes we read in the scriptures that took place hundreds of years after the original race of the Nephilim died out, that the name for these strange beings was used as a general term to describe somebody or some group of people who had certain characteristics that were deemed evil. Or, or, or maybe they were physically larger than others, therefore menacing, or they were the fiercest of the warriors, or some such thing. For example, in Christ's day, long after the Canaanites of old were gone, the term Canaanite was still used. That is, while no living Israelite then even knew a Canaanite, it was common memory among the Jewish people that the Canaanites of old were idol worshippers and child sacrificers. Everything that Israel detested. So Canaanite came to be a term used as a cuss word, so to speak. Usually referring to a person you disapproved of. Often it was in reference to a merchant who cheated somebody. Or somebody who didn't practice his Judaism to the satisfaction of some of the more pious folks. When I was a younger man, I can recall a person being called a communist if you didn't like them. It was really not about them actually belonging to the communist party. It was 
just kind of a politically correct four-letter word for that day. Since communism was public enemy number one all throughout the 50s and the 60s and, and well into the 70s, what with McCarthyism and the Korean and Vietnam Wars, to call someone a communist was a derogatory term and a label that nobody wanted. Now, let me state emphatically that many of the sages and rabbis wove the legends of the Nephilim into their traditions, particularly the traditions concerning angels and in the, the world of evil spirits. So as far as they were concerned, these Nephilim were not only real before the flood, but also after. So who and what they were was to always be taken in the most literal and real sense. Now one other thing and we'll move on. Verse 3 speaks about God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Ruach HaKodesh. Not striving with man forever. All sorts of interesting theologies have come from this verse. But to the sages of old, it was very straightforward. God is spirit. And so he is essentially speaking of himself when he speaks of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that component or person or attribute of God that we call spirit. In Hebrew, ruach, that deals with man. What verse 3 alludes to is that God has decided to give man 120 more years to straighten up and fly right before he destroys them with a flood. This was a warning. Yet in later times, many Hebrew and Christian scholars insisted that the plain wording of these verses mean that men were going to be given an approximate maximum lifespan. 120 years. But if they're correct, the number of extreme exceptions to that rule was significant because we're told in the scriptures that after the coming flood, many generations of men, many descendants of Noah listed in the Bible lived to be several hundreds of years old. So certainly man's lifespan, at least at one point after the flood, was more than 120 years. And we also know from a historical standpoint that lifespans vary from century to century, from culture to culture, from circumstance to circumstance. And since this remark about lifespan is a general statement that makes no distinction between righteous people and wicked people or between God's people and people that aren't His, I think this statement about 120 years was a duality. It was not only about how long the human body was designed to live, it was about God pronouncing that the flood would commence in 120 more years, wiping out all mankind, all except Noah and his family. Well, God has now established another fundamental that we all need to be thrilled about. He does not destroy the faithful and the godly right along with the wicked and the godless. That's a biggie. He does not destroy the faithful and the godly right along with the wicked and the godless. Now we should not confuse this concept 
of God pouring out His wrath on the one but not the other with the belief that God does not allow bad things to happen to good people. God most certainly does allow the harms of this natural world to affect both the godly and the godless. God most certainly does allow the wickedness of evil men to befall the godly and the godless. God also does not promise to shelter the godly from persecutions by the godless or the wicked. But you see, these things that come about at the hand of men are not from Him. They are from the evil one or from man's own evil inclination. This is so key. What God does promise is not to shower His own wrath, His divine judgment upon the godly right along with the godless. I mean, can you see the difference here? This is especially important to grasp as we, as we consider end times events. Because by definition, tribulation is different from God's wrath. Tribulation, or the tribulation period, is men pouring out evil upon other men at an unprecedented level. God's wrath is divine calamity brought about supernaturally. Major difference. Not related whatsoever. Now as we consider an earlier time when God poured out His wrath so that the righteous would survive the supernatural wrath God was about to wreak on the whole planet, God had Noah build an ark. A God-designed safe haven for Noah and his family. This ark would allow the righteous to live while the wicked perished. Now I can only imagine how ridiculed Noah was for building this 450 foot long monstrosity. To start with, there's no indication at all that Noah lived anywhere near a substantial body of water. What he did was not unlike building an ocean liner behind your barn in the middle of the Nebraska wheat fields. But here's the deal. And it's summed up so elegantly in verse 22. It says this. This is what Noah did. He did all that God ordered him to do. And it saved his life and the lives of his family. In verse 9 we're told that we are going to get Noah's story. And the first thing we're told about him is that he was Sadiq. Sadiq. Hebrew for righteous. But even more, he was Tamim, which is usually translated as blameless or wholehearted. Nothing wrong with that translation. 
but it obscures something that is learned in a progressive way throughout the Torah. Particularly when we get to Leviticus, we're going to find out that much of what the Torah is teaching Israel about is holiness. And one of the chief attributes of holiness is wholeness. Completeness. Nothing lacking. So I would prefer to read this verse as Noah being Zadik, righteous, and Tamim, whole. Of Noah's three sons, Ham, Yafet, and Shem, it would be Shem that will soon be identified to us as a special set-apart line of people. It is interesting that Shem means name. One of God's titles that is commonly used by Jews is Hashem, the name. It is also interesting that Hebrew tradition is that that mysterious biblical king and priest of Shalem called Melchizedek, who Abraham would bow down to and give tithes, was actually Shem. And the timing is such that it most certainly could have been Shem because he was alive then. We're going to talk about that more when we get to that point in Genesis. Verse 12 is among the saddest in the entire Bible. At least it is to me. It says that God looked upon all He had made and it had gone to ruin. The Hebrew word used here is shakath. And while corrupt is a good translation, the word corrupt in our modern vocabulary means dishonest. Therefore, making it as though the point of God's concern was that men were not dealing fairly with each other and they lied and they stole and they cheated. That's not the sense of the word. Polluted to the point of ruin better catches catches the sense of shechath. Contrast this with what God said but a few chapters earlier in the last verse of chapter 1 of Genesis. Now God saw that all He had made and it was exceedingly good. God's creation decayed from perfection to utter ruin in just a few generations. We'll close with this. Something rather interesting is said. Something even more interesting is omitted in verse 13. God says that the cause of this corruption, the cause of this going to ruin problem is the living beings He has created. Often the Hebrew word used here, basar, is translated as flesh, which is a perfectly good translation. But here's the thing. Basar, flesh, doesn't just refer to man. Although at times it does mean man. Rather, it can and it just as often does refer to animals. Adam means man or mankind. That's not the term used in this context. So the idea at play is speaking about all living flesh. 
everything to which God gave life and animation is at fault. Man and animals. But to me, even more interesting is what or who God doesn't blame. He doesn't blame Satan. We need to take notice of that. Because it once again brings us back to the concept of the source or the origination of evil. A really big subject. And while I don't fully agree with all aspects of the Hebrew view on the subject of evil, I have to say that more and more I can't refute the bulk of it. The Hebrews say a couple of important things about evil and sin that I think matches what Scripture says far more than some Christian doctrines on evil and sin. And first and foremost is that mankind was originally created with both a good and an evil inclination. That is, Adam was created with the capability of choosing one over the other. The second viewpoint is perhaps even more difficult than the first one to deal with. It is that if evil was there at the beginning, then God created evil and good. That's their viewpoint. Next time, we're going to explore these controversial Hebrew concepts of good and evil in great depth. I think you're going to like that one. Okay, we'll see you next time.